all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning and thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress and this is Relatively Speaking. So today we are talking about early brain development. Why does it matter? What's going on that we can make a difference for our children? So today it's a pleasure to have Dr. Pat Levitt here. He's Sims Man Chair in Developmental Neurogenetics at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. He's a, the W.M. Keck Chair in Neurogenetics at the Keck School of Medicine and Director of Neuroscience Graduate Program. So welcome, Dr. Levitt. Well, thanks for having me. It's Glad absolutely a pleasure to have you. So we are very lucky to have Dr. Levitt here in town with us. He's talking to several groups, actually, on the importance of um, attention to early brain development. And Dr. Levitt conducts research on the development of brain architecture that controls learning, emotional, and social behavior. So, Dr. Levitt, I'm just going to turn this over to you. I want you to tell us today, why does early matter so much? Well, that's sort of the key question, I think, in terms of uh, thinking about brain and child development. So, the brain starts to develop before birth, Mm -hmm. um, and things occur in a really rapid fashion, and and it continues after birth for – I'll talk about that in a little bit – for a long period of time. Right. But those early times are really critical, just like building the architecture the, of a house. When you build a house, you want to have a plan, you want to have a frame, and you want to have, most important, a strong foundation. And so before birth and after birth, and for the first two or three years, uh, things are changing at such a rapid pace. For example – the number of nerve connections that are being made, what we call a synapse, that's how ner- nerve cells com- communicate with each other. Right. That's how a baby figures out what's going on in their world and taking that information in and then responding. We, that occurs at about one million nerve connections per second. So I want you to snap. That's per second. Snap your fingers. Okay. That's a million connections that have just been made in that two-month-old or in that one-month-old. Amazing, it's unbelievable, isn't it? right? And and so getting it right the first time, obviously, in in any aspect of life, whether you're building a car f- from scratch, w- w- whatever you're building, you want to get it right the, the first time. Now it doesn't mean you can't change things later on, but it never comes out the way you exactly wanted it to, mm-hmm. and it always costs a lot more. Like oh. Why don't I put that second bathroom into the house that I was building? Or <laughs> right. why didn't I have a separate barn? And now I got to figure out how to make that connection between the house and, and the barn. Whatever it is, you want to get it right the first time. So the amazing thing is that those 
changes are happening very rapidly. You mentioned something very early on, even in utero, when that baby's inside mom. So important to even plan for what's going on environmentally then, right? So that's why we don't, we recommend no smoking, no alcohol drinking, good nutrition. Really important because um, that's really the foundation. Everything that occurs after birth is, of course, is important, but you're filling in all the details. But before birth, prenatally, uh, healthy environment, nutrition, if you look at all the risk factors that go into poor outcomes, as as you know, as a developmental uh, pediatrician, um, most of the factors tend to be prenatal factors that can really disrupt or derail development in a really serious way. The other thing that's happening, which I think surprises a lot of people, is that the the baby's getting ready to be able to respond to its world once it uh, it's born, and so the senses are already coming online uh, in the third trimester. They can hear voices, and in fact, we know right at birth they'll turn their head when they hear a voice that they've been hearing in utero, which is amazing. They, uh, we've talked before about those amazing studies that are out there looking at the response to the fetus in utero. That's right. Sound. And, you know, the relationship starts uh, prenatally and, of course, is critically important after birth as well. And I, I always say children grow up in an environment of relationships. And so people say, well, what does that exactly mean? Of course, they're in relationships. Strong relationships because we're social, you know, humans are social. We expect to interact with other humans. And an infant does from the very big beginning. If you do this, for example, maybe you've done this already. <laughs> if you lean over the bassinet and stick your tongue out at a baby, what will the baby do? Uh, often they'll try to mimic what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. That's the first sign that they're actually interacting socially yeah. with you. They want to share in that. And those those social interactions really are the critical ingredients that help big build cognitive circuits, social circuits, and emotional uh, circuits, keeping in mind that all of them are like uh, a rope that is intertwined. Mm-hmm. The, if you take separate threads of a rope and intertwine them, it's much stronger. And in fact, that's the Absolutely. relationship between social, emotional, and cognitive development. So, for example, programs that only focus on cognitive development and don't deal with social and emotional development of the infant, toddler, and child don't work nearly as well as when we go after all three because they're so tightly connected to each other. And those relationships, again, I know I've just said this probably, what, four or five times? It's okay. Those it's are really critical, really, really important. Yeah. So so one issue that you've you've already brought up, and we've talked about media and, and young children and, and that issue, and I don't want us to talk very long on that because we have on this show several times before. But you just mentioned that that relationship, that back and forth relationship. So if a baby makes a sound, ah, and nobody responds to that vocalization, then it might not be reinforced, right? That's exactly right. And it's what we call serve and return in our relationships. Now, the thing about serve and return is that most adults think that they are doing all the serving. 
Mm. But think about how boring the game would be <laughs> if you're playing with somebody else and they get to do all the serving. So that's how an infant feels. They sometimes will initiate and they're expecting the adult to be paying attention and responding back. They may, you know, coo or do something like that and they want the adult to return the response. Mm. And in fact, that's how infants learn language. They learn language in this to and fro, this back and forth. And we don't learn language unless we do it in a social setting in the context of those relationships. And and that's really sort of the core message is that early matters because those relationships that are built really early are the ones that are going to be the strongest and are going to provide for the child to be ready to learn. Uh, to learn what we call executive uh, functions. Those executive functions are really important for them to learn how to problem solve, how to control their emotions, how to make the right decisions. And we know that uh, when they get older, when they become teenagers, making those right decisions sometimes is really difficult. Um, But (laughs) if they have executive function starts early in terms of developing these these uh, skills, they'll actually come out of adolescence in much better shape. And then finally, I want to say that employers, if you ask them, what are you looking for? You're looking for high IQ? No, we're not looking for high IQ. We're looking for people who have great executive function. What does that mean? It means they have control over their emotions. They have good impulse control. They have good memory so they can remember facts to make a decision. And then they also work well in social context. And those are all the ingredients that begin to be built even before birth and in those first two or three or four years um, after birth, critical. So you're talking about just building blocks that start so very, very early. And one one message that we want to get across in our show today is that we can't just start at kindergarten. Uh, we have to get that child ready from the very, very beginning. And so much effort often is put into the success, uh, teaching to the test, for example. You know, we, we spend all kinds of time preparing children to take the ACT or to take standardized achievement tests. What we really need to be doing, I think that's what you're saying, Dr. Levitt, is that we really need to be working from the very, very beginning to be able to have an individual who's not just smart, but one who's able to to really know how to handle life in all the different aspects. That's right. right. That's the best predictor for positive outcomes in terms of um, family, uh, in terms of their ability to hold a job. High school graduation rates are up higher in those individuals who have a strong foundation, um, individual wealth. Uh, There's been all these studies that have been done for 30, 40, 50 years where the uh, study subjects started out at the age of two in the study, and uh, now they're in their 40s and 50s. And you can see what what the red flags were early on and what the ingredients were that allowed them to succeed at whatever they chose to do in their life. Teaching to the test doesn't Work, And we actually have a right. lot of studies that have shown that teaching to the test doesn't work. But if you incorporate – and it sounds like soft science, but in fact, the 
we don't consider the development of our visual system to be able to see out of both eyes soft science. That's real hardcore anatomy and physiology. Well, we have circuits in our brain that are responsible for our ability to socially interact and our emotional control. Um, Think about Mm -hmm. executive function, for example, as an air traffic controller. You want that air traffic controller to have a great memory to remember that, you know, there should only be two planes coming in at 2 o'clock, and now there's a <laughs> third important. one. Now there's a third one. that You don't want them to panic. You want them to have impulse control. Don't come up with the first thing that comes to your mind. Think about it and think about a solution that's going to get you out of that uh, terrible situation. A terrible yeah. situation. And so, so those are the elements that starting early continue through preschool, grade school, junior high school, and high school, and prepare individuals to be successful. And, you know, businesses know this. The armed forces know this. Um, The the armed forces, for example, have some of the best early child programs in the country, if not the best, because they know that they're preparing families and they're preparing the the children of of families for the thing that matters most to those families, which is... um, the framework to be able to raise their children to be successful. And and that turns out to be the case. Research study after research study shows that early programs matter a lot to work with families. Right. Not just early programs, but great early programs that know how to work with. The, great early programs. The, That's exactly right. The young children. This morning, we're talking to Dr. Pat Levitt, who is Sims Man Chair in Developmental Neurogenetics at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. And he has done a great deal of research on early brain development, why early matters. That's what we've been talking about this morning. And we want to talk a little bit about uh, a little bit further um, into the show about why what parents what parents should be asking for when you go into your doctor your primary care provider your nurse practitioner what should you expect your care provider to be doing for you also i'd like for us to talk a little bit in our next segment about what should we expect that a child care center should do for your child is it just good babysitting or should there be maybe a little bit more so we'll take our first break and when we come back we'll talk about those things this is an mpb think radio podcast To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Relatively Speaking. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, and we are here with Dr. Pat Levitt, who is, we are very honored to have here. He's um, Sims Man Chair in Developmental Neurogenetics at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. And he has done a great deal of research on early brain development and the architecture of the brain and how we really, really need to pay attention to why early is better. So we've talked about why early is better, why paying attention to our babies when they're inside mama and and then as soon after they're born, we need to get busy on making sure that we are stimulating things well and helping those children develop to their best abilities. But Dr. Levitt, 
What do we do? Is it hopeless? Is it hopeless if we feel like maybe some things were undiscovered? Maybe there's some parents out there listening now who have um, older children, maybe even teens. Is it hopeless? What can they do to maybe help? Yeah, so it sounds, you know, when you say early matters, people always say, well, so if we didn't do the right thing early, is it all over? Is it over? And, And the answer is no. And, and here's the good news, right? The, the good news is that the thing that I've been talking about, this executive function, right. which sounds like I'm talking about like the head of a corporation or something. <laughs> well, in some ways they are the sort of the yeah. c- executive function is kind of the CEO of your of your brain. Now, for for reasons that none of us really understand, the wisdom of how the brain develops is that this is the one function that continues to develop over a long period of time. And some people say, well, I'll ask you, how long do you think executive function continues to develop for? Well, I know that answer. You do know that. You know <laughs> well, that. I don't know it completely, but I do know that that certainly there's some research out there that says it can it really continues into the late teens, early twenties. Into the early thirties. Early thirties. Into the oh, early thirties. I didn't know that answer. So <laughs> so if if you were to pick you know, so for example, when a child is born with a problem with their eyesight and their vision, you know that there's this thing we call the critical period where right. we need to treat it um, um, before uh, the, the the window closes and we're not able to make the adjustments so that they can see properly, right? Right. And, and so that tends that's relatively short in yeah. terms of just you know four or five years. For executive function, it's thirty years. Um, and so Which that is, means gives that us some hope, right? It gives us some yeah. great hope because that's that is the key set of functions that's responsible for our ability to to uh, make out in the world, to be right. uh, a great parent, to uh, be employed, and to be a, and a great employee, to succeed at whatever we set our own goals for. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that. You know, we we tend to think about fixes because, you know, the brain is an organ, just like our liver, our heart, et cetera, but it's much more complicated. Uh, but the beauty about, about the brain is that it its development is based on experiences. And so rather than thinking about it as taking a pill and suddenly we're going to fix it, we can change the experiences that our infant, our toddler, our child, our teen are having. Those experiences are actually making physiological changes and structural changes to our brain. The nerve connections are changing. The chemistry of that teenager's brain is changing. You think they have a hole in their head. They don't have a hole in their head. (laughs) It's just their executive function is continuing to develop. And by learning, sometimes making bad decisions or wrong decisions with supportive relationships, those are learning experiences that then become success stories for them to be able to make right decisions more often than not. And it's through experiences that are provided through these relationships that I've been talking about that are so critical. So you say that those positive experiences in learning are so important. On the flip side of that, correct me, um, I'm certain this is correct. I want you to comment on this one. 
The flip side is that if you have an individual in a really terrible situation, a child who's enduring um, severe um, abuse and or emotional, I, I think sometimes people think when there's abuse, they're thinking, oh, that's physical abuse and you can see it. But emotionally, um, if the child is in a terrible or a negative situation, it's just as bad, correct? Oh, so that's a that's a great point to make and, and one that's really, really critical and for, for parents and physicians and healthcare providers to really understand. Um, we tend to think of uh, toxic stress, right. uh, the early life stresses, the adverse childhood experiences as being about abuse, physical um, harm. Right. Um, but it turns out that about 80% of high levels of stress are produced by neglect, the absence of serve and return. So think about that. It's hard to detect the absence of something. It is. It's, it's much easier to see a bruise or a broken bone, sadly, than it is to be able to recognize that a child is not being attended to. And I'm not talking about the occasional, I'm on the phone, stop bothering me. <laughs> right. That's not neglect. That's actually a lesson for the child to learn in terms of impulse control. Right. Right. It's about the the chronic um, absence of servant return, which has tremendously powerful impacts on the stress biology of that child. Um, and it turns out that um, that re, that wires the brain in a way that's very different for that child to be able to navigate their uh, world. And so that, to me, is sort of the holy grail that we have to figure out in, in health care and in education is for our professionals to be able to recognize those early adverse experiences, particularly neglect, and to steer uh, families into programs that will help them understand how to do that serve and return. Programs that help both the child and the parent together are the ones that tend to work the best because you're fostering, again, that serve and return relationship. Programs that just target the child or just target the parent, obviously, even you don't need to be an expert to know, well, that's not going to work nearly as right. well as right. if I have the the combination. The combination together, which you're bringing up a wonderful point. I think so many times when you find a child is in a situation of neglect, there's a lot of upset and anger at the parent. But so many times that parent was a victim of neglect or perhaps there was something that happened to that individual as a child, uh, that was never corrected um, when they became an adult. They never learned how to be an appropriate parent, right? That's exactly right. And and actually, um, these programs now that are sort of have this, this diagram where they show that adult capacity through actually training and teaching executive function skills is, is a major part, half of the equation, that then has this incredibly positive effect on their relationship with their with their child. It breaks the cycle, breaks the right. intergenerational cycle. Because if you've never done something before, and in fact you've had experiences that are that are difficult, really hard, you're not going to know how to do it 
in an appropriate way. That's why th- those kinds of, of uh, supports that families need, I think, are really critical in terms of getting development off on the right foot. Right. So, Dr. Levitt, if you will help us here. So if a parent is concerned, perhaps, that there might be something going on with their child's development, or if they're not even really that concerned, what if they're going in for a well-child checkup, what should a parent expect to get for their child from that checkup? So I I think typically what physicians learn in, you know, when they're in training is to learn about the sensory and the motor milestones. Right. Is my child rolling over? Is my child um, uh, orienting, you know, turning towards me when I say their name? Um, are they responding when I touch them? Those sorts of things. Um, but there's so much more to look for in terms of a child, not just turning and orienting or responding or rolling over or getting up to a crawl position, those are all very important because those allow the child to interact, interact, with, with, interact the environment. with their yeah. environment. Uh, but you have to look at, are they making efforts to uh, socially engage with their parent or primary caregiver or their brother or sister, whoever is is in their uh, life, their caregiver at a, at a preschool program? Those are all critically important. So looking for those signs or talking to the physician about whether they feel that the child is meeting some of those social milestones is really important. I'll give you one little tidbit. Do we have time for that? Yes. So there was a study done uh, by Amanda Woodward, who's a psychologist, and she noticed that a child begins to reach uh, and is successful in reaching for objects around seven, eight months. Right. Before that, it's like watching somebody swatting a fly. Mm. They don't do it very well. But they get better than chance at around seven or eight months. The other thing that they do is they grab the object and they go, oh, that's yeah. my high voice. Going, the child <laughs> look, wants look. to share that yeah. moment, right? The child that wants shared to, moment. They want yes. to share that 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 moment. So she yeah. did She did the study where she brought the children in at three or four months. She put little Velcro mittens on their hands and had them reach for Velcro objects, or training their motor system a little earlier. Uh-huh. And sure enough, as they were able to target those, grab those objects, they wanted to share that moment with their caregiver. Now, it's so exciting. It's so exciting yeah. because you can see these things. Develop. So a motor milestone is not just a motor milestone that a physician sees. It's also the period of time when they should be seeing the child socially engaging with their pet, with, with mom or dad or with brother or, or sister. They should be looking for the social and emotional signs. Uh, are they able to be, to be calmed down if, the, if they get up? Upset? Are are they able to show that they are beginning to learn how to co-regulate their emotions? Because infants don't learn how to regulate their emotions by themselves. Right. They do it with their right. caregivers. Absolutely. 
So showing that social emotional development is or knowing what it is and knowing what's appropriate is so very important. So that early discovery, early developmental screening of of for for those things is is so important so that then you can work on how to make it better if it's not developing appropriately, right? That's right. And 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 that's why not not just for healthcare professionals to look at those milestones and for parents to ask uh, if they're not seeing something um, that the infant is doing that they have read about or they think the infant should be doing. There's all sorts of information out there, as you know. Right. Um, and, you know, zero to three, for example, first five, these are organizations that have a lot of information for uh, parents to be able to see, well, here are the kinds of things that my child should be doing other than the the things that everybody kind of knows about in terms of you know rolling to crawling to walking babbling language it turns out that if you play an audio tape of somebody talking to an infant by themselves they don't learn the language they have to learn language in a social setting how many words should my child be babbling at 18 months or 2 years of age those are all part of the milestones that we want to look for all of the all that information also needs to be uh, in the expertise basket of those who are working in um, early child programs. They're right. really critical elements. They're partners in this process, this miracle that we call child development. They're, they're part of that process, and they need that knowledge as well, and parents need to be able to count on them as well for information. Dr. Levitt, thank you so very much for all this incredible information. Um, Dr. Levitt is going to be speaking in a couple of other places. I know he has a dinner tonight and tomorrow, and we're just going to get all we can out of him. So I just want to thank you so much for being here in Mississippi and helping us know how that early discovery is so important for later success. Well, thank Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back and thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. And you just were listening to a pre-recording. That was Dr. Pat Levitt, who came into the studio yesterday and recorded with me um, what you heard. Hopefully you got to listen to most of it about early brain development and why early matters, why it's so incredibly important for us to make sure that we do everything we can do to um, have our babies in the right environment when they're inside mama and then when they're when they're early in their developmental 
process. Um, incredible. I guess you hopefully heard that there are synapses, um, nerve connections happening at an incredibly rapid rate. The brain size triples by the end of the the first year of life. It's amazing what is going on in that little tiny brain um, as a child is is growing. So to have them in the right environment is really important. We know that genetics plays a role, certainly, in, in the way we look and somewhat in our intelligence, but not as much as used to be thought. So the incredible thing is that we can really make changes, make a difference if, if a child um, has the right kind of stimulation and early intervention if there is any kind of concern. So I hope you'll give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to family at mpbonline.org. If you want to ask some questions, I'm here and I can answer them for you. And we do have a caller. We have Katie and Hurley who... Um, has a comment on the economic status of what we're talking about. Hi, Katie. Thanks for calling. Hi, how are you? Great. Um, so there is a, the doctor kind of touched on it a moment ago, but um, it's really important to talk to your, your baby, and, and it has to be meaningful dialogue. You can't just put him in front of the TV and, like, even though it's, like, word barrage, it's not really doing much. But there was a right. study that showed that the difference between the economic levels was um, like they counted the words that were spoken to the child. And I don't know if they filtered out meaningful words. There probably was some kind of control for that. But the big difference was like the wealthier and working professional families, they tended to speak a lot more directly to the child. And it could just be like, oh, look at your feet while you're changing their clothes. So my advice is just to... It makes you feel a little crazy because you're just talking all day long. Oh, look, there's the dog. He's a funny dog. But that's my advice. (laughs) Great advice, Katie. And you're absolutely right. There is a huge word deficit in individuals who, children who grow up in um, families who are impoverished. And it seems that when those studies were looked at, you were looking, you were talking about meaningful conversation. So what Dr. Levitt uh, said was it's the serve and return. So you want to have conversation. And, and the study looked at those meaningful words, those serve and return words. So maybe the baby didn't coo back, but they were looking at you or they were being responsive to you. You. They did not count words of a child in front of a television. They counted words that were coming from a primary caregiver of that child. And um, the word deficit is huge by the age of, of five, which makes a difference. If you don't hear a word, how can you know what that word is supposed to mean or be? So, yeah, I, um, you, you just uh, gave an example of what's wonderful to do. Just talk through your day. Talk out loud to the baby, even if nobody else is there. 
You might be surprised how much they're understanding. We know receptive language comes in much earlier than expressive language. So the what they perceive and understand comes um, in, comes develops much earlier than what they can say. So, but but often, often they they get it. And um, like we were talking about in the earlier segment, we also know that um, intonation, the way you express yourself, the way you smile at the child also gives some connectivity in that ability to serve and return. So if your baby coos back at you when you've just said something, you can coo right back. You don't have to give a real word, but just a response. But I've always been a fan of using real words because I truly believe the the earlier babies hear a lot of words, the bigger their vocabulary is going to be. So um, the the economic status does play a part, and it seems that the reason for that is not because um, parents in poverty don't talk to their kids, but it may be that they're working two jobs, and there's a sitter there who's not talking. It may be because that parent is sad, and... Um, unable to express themselves because they're in a terrible situation. So one of the messages I hope we get out today is that early matters, not just for our own children, but for other children. So those children who are in poverty, we need to intervene on early. Those children who are being neglected, we need to intervene on early. We put way too much money into um, the well, maybe we don't put too much money into the um, older population, but if you look at our expenditures um, on our population, our legislative expenditures, our general expenditures everywhere, there is much more emphasis in the older individual than in the young child. And our money should be put, a large bulk of it should be put in young child development because economically, um, For every dollar that you spend on early education, early childhood, you save $7 of later interventions. So just all of that. Katie, I'm sorry I sounded like I got on a tirade, but you started me there. So um, I appreciate your call. I totally agree. I did want to say, too, that I I forgot to mention it, that a lot of, you know, um, I, I come from a poor family, too, and I was... I was thinking, you know, it's just hard to be excited about everything when you're just so tired. Yeah. (laughs) So that's, you know, it's not like they intentionally have a deficit, but it just happens because life wears you down. It does, and it can, and that's why we need to be supportive to those who perhaps need help. So thanks for your call. Thank you. So let's go next to, we have Ken on the road. Ken, you have a comment about nutrition? Yes. Good. Thanks for calling. An important issue. So tell us what your thoughts are. All right. Well, doctor, I I listened to the previous uh, 30 minutes, uh, and the two of you were talking basically about behavior and patterns that, that develop. Uh, you talk about uh, the, uh, the womb, and my point of view is it starts even before 
you have an embryo in the womb. Absolutely. It starts with the mother and the father, the male and the female, uh, because each one gives the same amount of chromosomes uh, to that new embryo, right? Right. Uh, And uh, they need to be healthy to begin with. And so the, the, the people in nutrition and you doctors especially need to get the the word out that the the potential mother and father have to be highly nutritionalized. Uh, and I'm sure you know now that that you can't get this out of the food that we eat. It's no longer in our in our food the things that we need. Uh, and the the result is it's very hard to have a healthy uh, baby, um, that uh, it, it's just the, the, the fact uh, that when that baby is in the womb right now of, of the mother, it's receiving uh, first dibs of uh, all the nutrition that the mother uh, is able to have. And hopefully she has the 90 essential uh, vitamins and minerals, amino acids, mm-hmm. essential fatty acids in the baby. When the baby is born then, uh, if it's not breastfed, it's going to be cut off of that nutrition. And this is why, for example, SIDS is so much higher uh, in non-breastfeeding children than with breastfeeding children, right? Breastfeeding children, uh, there's a 67% less chance that SIDS Breastfeeding does seem to be protective in several different areas. There is a lower incidence of SIDS, and there also is, it seems, that in general, better better brain development. That's not to make parents who, mothers who cannot breastfeed for some extenuating circumstance uh, feel guilty. There are some formulas that are good, but nothing, nothing is as good as breast milk. And there's a lot of good support out there to, to help that. Ken, I'm going to um, take you back to a couple of things you said. Um, you can get adequate nutrition um, from the foods we eat if you eat the right foods. I think one problem that we, many, many of us have in the U.S. is that there's far too much intake of processed foods, foods that have um, preservatives, dyes, um, artificial ingredients. Um, if you just ate blueberries instead of something that was flavored blueberries, if you if you just had the proper amount of intake, you can you can do it. But there have been studies in the past um, that have shown that there are several things that can be prevented if um, adequate nutrition is there. And and Ken is so right, listening audience. I want you to know that if you have uh, a friend, a child, yourself, um, a granddaughter who's looking at um, maybe getting pregnant or interested in having children, um, prior to pregnancy is the best time to get all that health intact and stop smoking and not drink and do all those things that make your body more healthy. Um, we we do know um, some of you may hardly see now um, individuals with a condition called spina bifida. Um, 
that's where there is a, a separation and exposure of the spinal cord due to poor formation of the the vertebral bodies that protect the spinal cord. Um, years ago, that was something that we saw fairly often. It caused um, several problems, neurologic problems, and um, could um, end up with a person who was wheelchair-bound due to that. Now we know that um, folic acid supplementation and B vitamins have made a huge difference and just about wiped that out. We hardly see it anymore except in individuals who, um, for some reason or another, had very poor nutrition. So adequate nutrition, not using any toxins. And Ken also pointed out, I want to thank you for doing that, to, you know, there have been a lot of studies looking at maternal nutrition, maternal medication, maternal drugs, maternal this and that, um, not near as much as we should um, on what's happening on the paternal side. And so how much impact that has, I do think that's being looked at um, from medication to age to nutrition now. Um, but something that we all need to pay attention to. Um, from if, if nobody will listen due to the fact that it's just the right thing to do to make sure our babies are well cared for and well educated and well nourished, um, then think about the economic impact. If we could intervene early on our children, get them into early education, take good care of them, get them out of a stressful situation by helping parents who are stressed be able to be better parents, we would have a very different state. We in Mississippi would no longer be next to the last or last in those areas where we would prefer to be first. So very important issues we're talking about today, very important things we need to talk about to each other, to our educators, and to our legislators, too. Um, it just important stuff. So we're talking about early brain development today. We had a, a wonderful insight um, imparted to us by Dr. Pat Levitt, who talked about the serve and return and how much early intervention um, can can do for a child. If you have any questions, we have a few more minutes. I'd love for you to join the conversation. You can call one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven you can send an email to family at mpbonline.org. So um, let me just kind of summarize some things for you as we um, go over the last few minutes of the show. Um, early relationships play a very important role in the support and the adaptation um, of how a child turns out. So uh, early relationships can make a big difference in ultimate outcome, or it can cause significant dysfunction. And one thing that um, Dr. Levitt has has studied, along with many other experts in the early uh, in the area of early brain development, is um, what we call adverse childhood events. So. 
adverse childhood events that might be neglect, abuse, um, chronic illness of a a family member, uh, mental illness of a family member, um, living in significant poverty and the like, those adverse events can significantly impact ultimate outcome, not just mental health, but also health, higher incidence of obesity, diabetes, um, cardiac disease have been shown in those individuals who have those um, significant adverse events. So we need to, to keep that in mind that we are not talking about just um, physical health. We are talking about brain health. Um, we're not talking about um, one or the other. We're talking about all of it. So it's heavily influenced by what happens. We also know that if we intervene early on an individual, a child who has, say, a speech-language delay, who has autism spectrum disorder, we can make a huge difference in the ultimate outcome. So we're going to jump to our our. Our caller right at the end of the show, Jenny, you have Jenny's in Water Valley, and she has some comments or questions about folic acid. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Um, I was just calling because when I was pregnant with my daughter, who's six months old, I read a study that I think maybe was one of the first of its kind, but it was linking a buildup of folic acid in the system of pregnant women to an increased chance of autism. Um, and so I was wondering if you had read anything about that or had any thoughts on that. You know, um, you can find an article about almost anything in the literature if you if you look at it. And um, I did see that. It looked like the numbers were not significant that that um, made anyone really concerned about. Mothers getting too much folic acid during pregnancy. Folic acid is one of those um, supplements that you'd have to take a bucket load because it's not fat-soluble. And so it's one of those um, vitamins that um, you, unlike vitamin A or vitamin D, D that gets stored in in the liver and other places and can cause damage if you get an oversupply. Folic acid is one that it would take a huge amount. So, you know, when that came out, I think those of us who know how much difference it made in, um, in um, keeping babies from being born with that spina bifida, we were terrified that people would be too afraid to take supplements. So um, hopefully people um, continue to follow their OB's advice on taking the supplement that they recommend. So thanks for calling and, and asking that question because that is a very, very important issue. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your answer. Well, you are quite welcome. So I want to thank everybody for listening, and thank you for our callers. And again, thanks to Dr. Levitt. He's out speaking right now in our community, um, hopefully imparting the knowledge that we all need to remember about 
early matters. It makes a huge difference. Today's show is engineered by Jay White, our producer, our call screener, Michelle McAdoo. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, and I hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 11 for Relatively Speaking. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now, coming up next on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.